I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 8? Mark chapter 8. We'll get to Mark eight thirty four in just a little bit. For the message entitled, Are You In or Out? Are You In or Out? Christ speaks to the problem of wasted living. I know a man who loves to do evangelism, who has developed two key questions that he uses when he's sharing with somebody. These are questions that open the door to share the gospel. And especially this works if you're just having a casual encounter. Might be having a cup of coffee with somebody, or might meet somebody in the airport or on an airplane, just in some casual encounter. But you want to plant a seed for the gospel. Well, this man asked two questions. Question number one is, what do you do for a living? That's an easy question. Because everybody does something. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a coach. Maybe you're in the, maybe you're in the ballet. Maybe you teach Spanish. Maybe you're a computer scientist. Maybe you're a, a foreman on the job. Maybe, maybe you're an auto mechanic. Uh, maybe you're a pilot in an airplane or a flight attendant. Who knows? Doesn't matter. The, the list of things people do is endless. But basically, that's a really good question to ask because everybody does something. So question one, what do you do for a living? And everybody can answer, answer that. Then he asked the second question. What are you living for? That's a really good question. Because not only does everybody do something for a living, everybody is living for something. But the problem is, the first question is easy to answer, relatively, certainly compared to the second question. And the man said, if you've let them answer the first, when you ask the second, what are you living for? He said they almost always stop. Because they are not sure how to answer that question. So let me ask you. It's where we're going to begin this morning. What do you do for a living? You've got your answer. What are you living for? It's a different question. Deeper. Some people live for money. A lot of people live for money. Some people live for their career. Some people live to amass a great deal of the world's goods. Some people live to get a title or fame or their name in the lights. Everybody is living for something. What are you living for? In order to help us answer that question this morning, I want you to go on a little biblical safari with me. We're going to go back in time 2,000 years ago, back to the time of our Lord, and we're going to go to the region of a village called Caesarea Philippi. 
Caesarea Philippi. Now, you know what this is, of course. This is the Sea of Galilee, right? What else could it be? Coming out of it is what? The Jordan River. Flowing into what? The Dead Sea, right? Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Up here at the top, the, the region of Galilee in the middle, Samaria. Down below, Judea. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. And next to the Dead Sea, to the west of it, is of course Jerusalem, and Bethlehem, so many of the scenes of the New Testament. You go over here, what's this? It's the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, in between what we call Israel, or the land of the Bible. Now here's the thing, Caesarea Philippi is not in Galilee, it's not in Samaria, it's not in Judea. If you ever take a tour to the Holy Land, and I hope you do someday, you will visit Caesarea Philippi. It'll be the day when you're up around the Sea of Galilee. So Sea of Galilee right here, you'll visit Capernaum. You might go see Chorazin. You might go see Bethsaida. You'll, you'll certainly pass through Tiberias. You'll go to the Mount of the Beatitudes and, and, and Tabitha where they, the, the traditional site of the loaves and the fishes. Now, to get to Caesarea Philippi, you've got to get on your tour bus. You've got to go north out of the Sea of Galilee into a valley. And on one side of the valley is Lebanon. On the other side of the valley, eventually, is Syria. You're going to go north from the Sea of Galilee. You're going to go through the kibbutz town of Kiryat Shemona. You're going to go north of Kiryat Shemona. You're really into near Lebanese territory there. And you're going to go east at some point. And east will take you up into the mountains. The region that we today call the Golan Heights. One of the, well, one of the most exciting regions of the world. Because a lot of stuff happens there. And if you go over the Golan Heights, you're in Syria. When you're in the Golan Heights, you're not very far from Damascus, Syria, which is so torn apart by fighting. Now, here's the thing. Your tour bus will go Kiryat Shimon, a little bit north to the east, and there's going to be a big mountain in front of you. That's biblical Mount Hermon. Biblical Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi was located on the southwestern side of Mount Hermon. The tour bus is going to come to that southwestern region, and you're going to see a lot of ruins there. That's the ruins that have been excavated of the ancient city of Caesarea Philippi. There's not many, there's not a lot there now. I mean, there's the ruins, but it's not a big city there now. Okay, you'll see that. You'll see a sheer rock cliff, and there'll be a spring there, and the spring that flows from the base of that rock cliff becomes a stream and the stream eventually feeds into down south into the Sea of Galilee. All of this is to say when Jesus and his men came to Caesarea Philippi they were not in Galilee or Samaria or Judea. They have left the region of Israel. They've left Jewish territory completely. They're into completely Gentile or pagan territory. Jesus has been preaching. He has been busy preaching and ministering and healing the sick, working miracles, uh, answering questions, bringing people close to God. It had been days and weeks and months of exhausting ministry. And maybe the best way to say it is this. We're, when we get to the story in Mark 8, we're about halfway through the ministry of our Lord. Okay, about, about halfway through. When Jesus, you'll remember, when He springs on the scene, He's an unknown 
Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. Nobody can figure him out. He preaches, but as, as they said, he didn't preach like the other rabbis. He didn't quote a lot of other authorities. He preached as one having authority in himself, one who actually knew God. You remember in the beginning, he was amazingly popular because uh, he could turn the water into wine. He could heal the nobleman's son. He could heal the man who was down there by the pool of Bethesda. He could work amazing miracles. When he opened his mouth, he spoke as no man had ever spoken. And so for the first early weeks and months and into the first year of his ministry, if you graft his popularity, it starts down here, but it's starting to go straight up. We're told in the New Testament, in the beginning, basically, Basically, everybody loved him, especially the common people. They understood that here was a man they could understand. Here was a man who cared for them. Here was a rabbi completely unlike anyone else they had ever known. But as the days and weeks and months passed, the Jewish powers that be, especially down here in Jerusalem, they begin to wonder about this man Jesus. They have two questions they can't answer. Number one, Who does he think he is? Question number two, what does he really want? That was a subject for great discussion in the Sanhedrin among the Pharisees and the scribes. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And most importantly, who does he think he is and what does he really want? What started as a discussion turned into suspicion. And suspicion hardened into doubt. Doubt became animosity animosity became outright hatred and by the end of all of that by the end of all of that which is still some months in the future they will pay a man 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord to them we aren't there yet in the story what I'm saying is by the time you get to Mark chapter 8 this early popularity has kind of leveled off and if you're graphing it some people loved him And among the power brokers, many of them doubted him, were suspicious of him. Many of them hated him. We could say it another way. By the time you get to this story, the the drumbeat, the drumbeat of opposition, you could hear it in the distance. It was getting louder every day. You could say another way, the thunderclouds of opposition were rising on the horizon they've not yet broken on his head that will happen in Jerusalem during Passion Week but the opposition is forming against him and even among the common people now who is this man where did he come from what is all of this about that brings us to Mark chapter 8 Jesus knowing better than anybody what the future would hold for him now takes his men away from Galilee up the valley to the east to the southwestern slope of Mount Hermon, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and there by the rock cliff with the spring coming out that feeds into the Sea of Galilee. There Jesus is going to ask His men two questions. You see, this is like the first ever church leaders retreat. This is the Lord with His key men getting away to get some stuff, to get two main questions squared away. Question number one. He asked His men, when they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say that I am? His men knew. They'd been out talking. They'd heard the discussion. It was like the first Gallup poll. Who do men say that I am? 
Oh, they knew the answer to that question. Some say John the Baptist. That was Herod's answer. Some say Elijah. Because the Jews believed that before Messiah came, Elijah would come on the scene. Some said, oh, he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the greatest of the later prophets. And some just said, he's a prophet of God. Which is a way of saying, he was a man of God, sent from, sent from God. Now, because we know the way this story ends, it's easy to make those those um, popular answers look a little foolish. But I don't think that's the way we should say it at all. When, or think of it at all. When they said John the Baptist, they meant it as a compliment. When they said Jeremiah, greatest of the later prophets. When they said Elijah, really nobody. Nobody. Had, the greatest of all the prophets of the Old Testament. The great Elijah. And one writer said, the common people didn't know who he was. But they were like moths. That, that they were like moths flying around the light. They knew there was something different about this man, but they couldn't quite figure out who he was. So those were really were good answers. They just weren't entirely correct. Question one, who do people say that I am? All those answers. Then Jesus said, and you, you, Simon Peter, you Matthew, you Bartholomew, you Andrew, you, you men who know me well, you men who have walked with me, you men who've eaten with me, you men who've seen my miracles, you men who've heard my teaching, you men who have been with me day and night for over a year, you, not those people out there, you, who do you say that I am? You see, at some point, you got to fall off the fence, right? At some point, you got to take a stand. At some point, you got to answer that question, right? At some point, every man, every woman, Every boy, every girl. At some point, everybody's got to answer the question. Forget everybody else. You. Who do you say that I am? Peter. He answers for everybody. He was the DL. The designated loudmouth. He answered for everybody. He blurts it out. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. In Greek, it's very specific. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. It's very specific. What's the importance there? First of all, number one, nobody has ever said this before. Nobody. In all of history, Peter is the first person ever to say it out loud. Okay, look, John may have thought it, but Peter's the one who said it. Uh, James may have surmised it. Peter's the one who said it. Matthew may have thought to himself, maybe this could be. But only Peter had the courage to blurt it out. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus nods his head. His men, his key men, they get it. They understand. He is the Son of God who has come down from heaven to earth. There's really only... One more question to ask. Now that you know who I am, are you in or are you out? Last um, year at Thanksgiving time, Marlene and I had a, we had a few days off. And so we, uh, we went down to San Antonio, Texas, down to the Riverwalk. If you've never been there, you should all go. This is amazing. San Antonio's beautiful. So we went down there. We got a, we got a hotel room right on the river walk there and spent Thanksgiving, uh, down there in San Antonio. Fantastic. And one day, because it's all pretty close down there, 
all very just kind of compacted. We walked about two and a half blocks to the Alamo. Still there. It's right downtown. You have all these skyscrapers. And there in the middle of downtown San Antonio, you have one of the sacred scenes of American history. You have the scene of the great battle for Texas freedom that took place in 1836. It's a, it is a monument and it is a shrine and you cannot help but be moved when you go there. And we went and we, we walked. It's really small. It's, you know, if you see the John Wayne movie, it, it looks like it's a lot. It looks like huge. It's really a very small, very small place they were fighting in. So we, we went there and we walked around. And then we went into, we went into a, one of those buildings where you could see a, a movie recreation of the Battle of the Alamo. And it's early March. It's 18... 36, and Santa Anna, the great, who is a terrific general, by the way, Santa Anna, the terrific Mexican general, head of those Mexican forces, he had, he had his forces arrayed all around the Alamo. Fighting's been going on for several days, and it's clear that the, that the men of Texas are not just outnumbered, but they're overwhelmingly outnumbered. And so Santa Anna sends a letter in. And says, either surrender or everybody in the Alamo will die. And as they show in the movie, William Travis, commander of the forces, gathers all of his men there in the courtyard inside the Alamo. He takes out his battle sword. And he draws the line in the sand. He says, we are outnumbered. If you stay, you will die, probably. Anybody who wants to can leave right now, and there'll be no recriminations. But I'm going to stay and fight and die. Who is with me? One man said he was going to leave. But all the rest of the brave Texans Jim Bowie, Davy Crockett from Tennessee, and all the rest of them, they crossed the line. We will fight, and we will die, but we will not surrender. You know, at some point, spiritually, everybody's got to come and make that decision. Are you in, or are you out? Are you in with Jesus, or are you out. That brings me now to the text. Mark chapter 8 verses 34 through 36. And there you go. It's up there on the screen. I'm going to read it and then I'll say a couple of words about it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? You know, every passage of the Bible has 
its own particular problem. Or every passage has its own challenge. Sometimes it's a challenge of great big theological words like justification and propitiation. Sometimes it's a, it's a question of things we'd like to debate about, like uh, predestination versus free will. And, and sometimes you have these strange place names. Just today, I, or these, these baby names, and I was reading in the book of Isaiah today, and they named their child Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That's a really long name. That's kind of a problem, you know. What's that all about? Sometimes you see these strange ge- geographical names. Um, sometimes, sometimes the, the problem is in the words of the text. There's no problem here. Sometimes it's a problem of the Greek or Hebrew text. There's no problem here. There's no hard doctrinal words here. There's no strange baby names here. There's no unusual place names here. There's no, those words are easy to read. The real problem is, what does that even begin to mean in the 21st century? So here's what I've done. We're going to throw this up on the screen as well. I have written a little paraphrase of, of this. And I've just called it, what's the best deal you can make? This is my version in 2018 terms of what I think Jesus is really saying. Now that you know who I am, are you ready to take up your cross and follow me? Before you answer, let me warn you that following me will seem in the eyes of the world as if you are wasting your life. The people of the world will never understand what you are doing. It will seem to them that by following me, you are throwing your life away. You always have another option. You can try to save your own life by following your own desires. Lots of people do that. They live as if their career was all that mattered. But the people who live only for this life, in the end, will find that they wasted it on things that don't really matter. They try to save it by living for themselves. But in the end, they will lose it. They have wasted their lives on trivial pursuits. But if you follow me, though the way will not be easy, and you will often be misunderstood, in the end, you will save your life. And the people who laugh at you now will not laugh at you then. They will see that you were right and they were wrong. After all, what good will it do if you become the richest man in the world or climb to the top of the corporate ladder or win the applause of the world? What good will all that do if in the end you find out it was all wasted? What good will that shiny new Lexus do for you then? Will you be able to trade it in for another life? No, you won't. But if you want to live that way, go ahead. Millions of people do. In the end, they will be sorry. But by then, it will be too late to do anything about it. So, men, what will it be? The way of the cross or the way of the world? You've got to invest your life somewhere. What's the best deal you can make? Or, we can paraphrase that. In the words of that great theologian, Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. On that point, Jesus and Bob Dylan are entirely agreed. You're going to have to serve somebody. So, I want to do a couple things, a couple things, just to help us frame this properly. Number one, I want to ask a question that's going to sound a little bit unusual. 
Was Jesus a failure? Sounds odd to say that at a Christian conference. But was he a failure? You know, there's a lot of people out there, outside the church, who read the story, and they don't come to the same conclusion we come to. They wonder if it was just a waste. Consider this. He was born in a barn, in an obscure village, in an out-of-the-way province of the Roman Empire. He never went to college. He never had a bank account. He owned no property except the clothes on his back. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never held public office. He never wrote a book. He never had a wife or children. His closest friends were blue-collar workers. He felt at home among the outcasts of society. His ministry consisted of preaching in the countryside, teaching in the synagogue, healing the sick, casting out demons. His opponents openly accused him of consorting with the devil. Along the way, he made many powerful enemies by exposing corruption in high places. Finally, his adversaries captured him, tried him in a kangaroo court, and put him to death. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. It seems like such a waste. He was such a fine young man. He had so much potential that Jesus was something else. But to end up crucified, what a waste. And not the whole story. Consider this. After more than 2,000 years, His words are remembered and repeated around the world. His followers number in the billions and can be found in every country on earth. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never practiced psychiatry, but He has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. His personal integrity stands unsullied amidst the attacks of the cynics and the sneers of the ignorant. His death, which seemed to be a tragedy, has become the means by which we can be reconciled to God. How great is His influence. We divide all history by His coming. B.C. and A.D. We call this year 2018 in honor of His birth. 2,000 years have passed since He walked on this earth. And yet, He still lives. Herod could not destroy Him and the grave could not hold Him. His whole mission on earth, which seemed to be a failure, has now become history's greatest success story. How can this be? Here is the answer. God arranged every part of it so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. When I read the New Testament if I really want to understand the death of Christ and what it meant to our Lord I actually don't go later in the New Testament. I go to the words of Jesus Himself and I find no verse helps me more than the words of our Lord in John 12, 24. When Jesus Himself describing His own death said unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. They would have understood that in the first century. Take a little grain of wheat, put it in the ground, cover it up with some dirt, put a little water on it. And what happens in a day or two or three or four or five little, the, 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 the seed is, has died. But out of the death of the seed, up comes this little green shoot that becomes a stalk of wheat. Say it to you this way. Take an ordinary acorn. An ordinary acorn. Hold it in your hand. Question. How many oak trees are contained in just one acorn? Nobody can answer that question because it's an unlimited, infinite number. Take just one acorn and put it into the ground. Dig a little hole, put the acorn down there, cover it with dirt, put a little fertilizer on it, and, and water it. You come back the next day, then nothing, and next day, nothing. But a few days down the road, you come and see little little green shoot has started to come up. You come back a few days or a few weeks later, and there's more. It's come up this high. And you come back in a month, and it's starting to become a little stripling. And the stripling's going to become a sapling. And you come back a few months later, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a small little, it's a small little thing, but it's an oak tree. Now you wait. Maybe you wait three years, or maybe you wait five years, or maybe you wait ten years, or fifteen years, or twenty years, and you come back. What has happened to that little thing? It has become an oak tree so large, it seems as if it reaches to heaven, and the branches stretch out this way, and the leaves cover the branches, and on every little twig of every branch on that tree, there's not just an acorn, it's covered with acorns. And when they fall to the ground, and they are planted, what comes up? Not just one oak tree, but a forest of oak trees. And soon, if you wait long enough, it begins to cover the whole wide earth and Jesus is saying the plant has to die the seed has to die but when it does great fruit comes up and he is saying I have to die but in my death life will spring up that will one day cover the whole wide earth one seed produces a vast harvest but the seed must die you know what the meaning of it is if you try to save your life in the end you lose it if you dare to lose your life for Jesus' sake, in the end, you will save it. I want to frame this one other way. I want to ask you a question. Do you have a career or are you on a mission for God? Do you have a career or are you on a mission for God? Career is good. Everybody needs a career. We've got to have doctors. We've got to have lawyers. We've got to have teachers. Somebody's got to play the trombone in the orchestra, right? Somebody, the trombone, that was my instrument, right? So somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to work at the store. Somebody's got to be a salesperson. Somebody's got to head up the office. Somebody's got to be a computer scientist and do all the whiz-bang technology. So we've got to have rocket scientists. We've got to have brain surgeons. So it's good to have a career. Listen, listen, here's the difference. A career is something you choose for yourself. A mission is something chosen for you by someone else. Here it is. A career. That, look, the Bible never talks 
about having a career. You won't even find that word in the Bible. Having a career is not a biblical issue. Having a mission is. Your career is the answer to the question, what do you do for a living? Your mission is the answer to the question, what are you living for? Here's the difference. Your career is a ladder to climb. Your mission is a journey you take. Your career makes you a professional. Your mission makes you a disciple. Your career takes you to the top. Your mission takes you to the cross. Your career is about the here and now. Your mission is about eternity. It's nice to have a career. It's far better to be on a mission for God. So ask yourself this question. Did Jesus have a career? No. He had a mission from God to be the Savior of the world. Nothing He did makes sense from a career point of view. Being crucified is not a good career move. Yet, by His death, He reconciled the world to God. Was He a success or a failure? The answer is obvious. Last November, David Cassidy died at the age of 67. When I was on the island last week, I mentioned David Cassidy. They had no idea who I was talking about. No idea. Clueless. Nobody knew. I knew you would know. Back in the early 70s, David Cassidy was a teen heartthrob. He was the star of the the Partridge family, and all those teen Tiger Beat and all those teen magazines, you know, they'd have pictures of him and, 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 the, and the girls would put his picture up on the wall all across America. He was extremely popular, extremely famous. Had a career in TV, had a career in music, had a career in speaking, had a career on the radio. And basically all his life, he was in show business one way or another. He died last November at the age of 67, according to his daughter, Katie. His last words were, so much wasted time. I think that's everybody's fear. I think we all secretly fear that, that we will come to the end and feel so much regret. That we will come to the end and realize we wasted our one and only life. When I heard about David Cassidy, it's kind of, it just popped into my mind. I remembered a little poem that I heard 50 years ago, hardly ever heard since then, by a man named Benjamin E. Mays. It just came to my mind when I read that his daughter said about his last words. I have just one minute only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it, give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. Eternity is in it. In one of his sermons, Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a man by the name of Robert Jaffrey who was born in the early years of, uh, in fact, the late, the late 1800s, was born in 
uh, Toronto, Canada. He was born into wealth. In fact, his family not only had wealth, but he was born into a family that owned a great newspaper empire. And he was the heir to the great newspaper empire. When Robert Jaffrey was a young man, his family, his mom and dad assumed that he would grow up and join the family business. And one day he would be the heir of the whole thing. But somewhere along the way, when he was a young man, he met Jesus Christ. Christ got a hold of his life and transformed him and created in him a great burden and desire to go to the mission field. When he got a little bit older, he announced to his family that he was going to go to China. He even learned the Cantonese language, which is the version of the Chinese language they speak over in Hong Kong. Had a burden to go and share the gospel in China. And his parents were, they were first shocked and disbelieving. Then they were aghast. And his father was angry. And his father finally said, Son, you can do that missionary thing if you want. But if you do, we disown you. You will not get a cent. A cent of your inheritance. None of it. He felt called anyway. But before he left, because he knew the Cantonese language, he was contacted by Standard Oil of New York. They offered him a huge amount of money. If he would give up his missionary dream, come work for them. He said no. They raised the price, the offer, and he said no. Finally, they cabled him with this message. Robert Jaffrey, at any cost. And he cabled back. Your salary is big. Your job is too small. He went to China and spent 35 years as a missionary there. He helped translate the Bible into Cantonese. Had a great burden not only for China, but for Indochina, what we call Vietnam today. When he was an old man, World War II broke out. The Japanese took all the missionaries in that region and put them in an internment camp. And that's where he stayed for all of World War II. His health was not good. Conditions were not good. And he contracted a kind of illness for which there was no cure. Robert Jaffrey died in the internment camp two weeks before the end of World War II. Here is my question. Did he waste his life? I guess it depends on your perspective. The great missionary C.T. Studd said these words that Jack Wurtzen often quoted. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All of us, all of us one day will pass from this life into the presence of God. All of us are going to die. For all of us, the end comes. Well, in fact, for all of us, not only comes, for some of us, it's coming much sooner than we think. And one day when we pass from this life, What will we say on that day? More importantly, what will the Lord say about us? Was the martyred missionary Jim Elliot who uttered these famous words, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
If you try to save your life, in the end, you lose everything. If you lose your life for Jesus' sake, in the end, you will save it. Consider your condition ten seconds after you die. Ten seconds after you breathe your last. All that money you made, somebody else is going to have it. That nice car you've got, somebody else is going to be driving it. Your office, somebody else is going to have it. All those clothes you've got filling your closets, somebody else is going to wear it. All that food, somebody else is going to eat it. And that nice house, somebody else is going to be living in it. Ten seconds after you die, all the stuff of this world isn't going to matter. But 10,000 times 10,000 years from now, you will still be glad you served Jesus Christ. You'll be glad in this life. And for endless ages to come, you will still be glad you decided to serve the Lord. So in a way, I just dropped by this morning. I said all of that. So I can now say this one sentence. Brothers and sisters, life is not a dress rehearsal. You're not going to get a do-over. You're not going to get a second chance. You're not going to get a, a chance to go back and clean up all the mistakes. doesn't happen. Life is serious. It's not a dress rehearsal. So the question then, do you have a career or are you on a mission for God? Your answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. Let me go back to those two questions from the beginning. What do you do for a living? That's the easy one. What are you living for? Could I give you a little bit of homework? We're done here moments from now. I want you to leave this place and ponder that question. What are you living for? It's not the easiest question in the world. Brothers and sisters, don't waste your one and only life. Use it to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be happy 10 seconds after you die. And 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 years from now, you'll still be glad you decided to serve the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, take the words I've spoken and do what my words can't do. Send your Holy Spirit now. Help us to think long and hard and deep about what we are living for. Wean us away from our love of the world. Wean us away from our love of fame and approval and success and all the fake promises of the world. Oh, Lord Jesus, come by Your Spirit. Renew us from within. Make us glad and willing to be on Your team now and forever because only 
what's done for Christ will last. Help us not to waste our one and only life, but to spend it, Lord Jesus, serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.